I'm Jim Baldry, and I serve as one of the elders here, and it's my privilege to read scripture to you today. Um, we are turning our Bibles to Mark 9, 14 to 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground, and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when it entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Dramatic story, isn't it? A descriptive story, even, as we look today at this interaction between Jesus and this father and his disciples and this boy possessed by, I believe, a real spirit, real demonic activity in the spiritual world. Well, again, glad you're here for the Gospel of Mark as we are making our way as Jesus is now kind of making a beeline for the cross. He is heading towards uh, what he has been called to do in the first half, we've been finding about him, who he is, what his kingdom is, and now Jesus is making his way towards the cross. But we begin today with a question. Maybe you saw it if you're on our all-church email list. Hope you are. encourage you to be on that if you're not by filling out a card for us, um, update and highlight there. But I started on that email this week with a question, how do you handle failure? How do you handle failure? And yes, I meant it to be kind of a teaser and get you to read that entire email, but that's a good question for us. How do you handle failure? It's a question I've been pondering a lot this week, 
as this morning we look at the disciples and a spectacular ministry fail that they have. A spectacular uh, fail, failure. When I was doing ministry in my early 20s and I was a, a family ministry pastor, I remember planning uh, this one particular event that I was really excited about. This is going to be a fun time of fellowship, a time to be together. Uh, it was a, a family movie night we had planned at our church. And we were going to gather the families and their kids and bring them together. We were going to show uh, Prince of Egypt, I think was the movie at that time, on a big screen with a great sound system. We had our gym all set up. We had gotten um, cotton candy, a popcorn machine nonetheless. It was going to work and pop popcorn. And we set up a snack bar and uh, I, I had made even a, a worksheet kids could take home and answer questions about the movie, and if they, they returned it on Sunday, uh, they'd get a prize. There was a, a lot of thought went into this uh, event. We'd advertise the event to our church, which uh, at least probably had 50, 60 kids in it, so a, a substantial amount of kids, and we'd advertise that we were starting at 6.30, so we're all ready that night, and I'd set up, and all of a sudden, 6.15 rolled around, and I looked at the gym, and it was just me. <laughs> like, oh, well, it's, you know, maybe people are just finishing dinner. It's kind of last minute. They'll be here. They're going to all rush in at the last minute. And then all of a sudden, 6.30 rolled around, and my heart began to sink. <laughs> Two families showed up. <laughs> Three kids was the total for that, that event. I was heartbroken. I was devastated. I promise I'm over it. I am. I'm over it. I heard, yeah, right. <laughs> How do we handle failures and shortcomings? I think we heard a yeah, right, because we know we don't handle them very well often, do we? How do we handle failures, shortcomings? I, I hope I learned a lot from that. I hope I did as I processed that. Uh, but I think we can as the reason we bring it up and the reason this story is in the Gospel of Mark is because we actually have a great opportunity in the midst of failures. Everybody's like, don't tell me that. <laughs> a great opportunity in the midst of failures, or how we handle them, or maybe even when we're even in the middle of them. The psalmist knew this. He said in Psalm 119, 71, it's good for me that I was afflicted. So some kind of failure. It's good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes, that I might learn about you, God, that I might learn who you are and more about you because of this trial, of, because of this failure, because of this affliction the word he used. How do you respond? Do you respond on the one hand, maybe is it with a failure, or a, 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 upon a failure with bitterness, anger, frustration, rejection of God maybe, or maybe those that you perceive that have caused that your failure? Or on the other side, you feel maybe, okay, disappointment which is natural at failure, but yet you're trusting God, moving forward, learning from the experience. And if I'm honest with myself, I'm probably a mixture of both at times. Maybe you are too. A mixture of both even at times. Well, this Sunday, Jesus descends. Remember that from last week, that glorious mountain of transfiguration. This week, he descends from that mountain, this glorious bright light experience to a dark, demonic dispute to address not only the failures of the disciples, but I think ours as well and our shortcomings by showing us three things this morning we're going to see. 
three things that you and I absolutely need. He's going to show us this morning three absolute needs that we have. So grab your outline. Hopefully you've got it open in front of you and your text to Mark 9 as we work through it this morning. As we look, uh, we pull and draw from this text three needs that we all have. Here's our first one. It's a lesson for all of us. In every area of life, God wants us to see you and I have an absolute need for Jesus in all our endeavors. All of your endeavors. Everything you do or try to accomplish or be or complete, we need Jesus. Let's see this in our story in Mark 9 this morning and then our own lives as well. Our scene, as I said this morning, comes on the heels of the transfiguration, one of the most glorious moments in all of Jesus' ministry that we talked about last Sunday. Remember, he's on the mountaintop, the pinnacle, the peak of the mountain, and his three disciples he took with him there have this incredible experience of seeing his divinity shine through his human body. And they heard from God the Father, remember in that cloud of smoke, this is my beloved Son, Listen to him. It was so impactful that Peter didn't want to come down the mountain, did he? Remember, he wanted to stay on the mountain. He wanted to stay there as he said, let's, uh, let's make some tents. Let's build some tents right here and stay. But Jesus knew, as we sometimes know, the mountaintop experience they had was to prepare the three, Peter, James, and John for real life, real life ministry, real life stuff and happenings, which is where Jesus wants us to be, here, Bethany Church, right here, here with real people, not up on a mountaintop experience. If you're in youth ministry for any amount of time you ever, or you take kids to a camp, the the phrase is always like, don't just let it be a mountaintop experience. You know, when they go, you go away to winter camp or something, you go to the mountains in the snow or something. Don't let it just be a mountaintop experience. What do we mean by that? Let it go back into your real life. Don't let it just be a camp experience. Let it go into your real life. Because that's where Jesus wants us to be, here, living day to day, ministering to each other. That's why he brought his disciples back down the mountain. We're not staying here, Peter. We have to go back. They go back down the mountain. Life isn't just about the mountaintop experiences. They're good, as it was for Peter, James, and John, because they encourage, they inspire, they refresh, they transform us. That's what was taking place at that mountain. But for real life ministry, for real life day-to-day stuff, which means that Peter's desire to insulate themselves up on the mountaintop was not a good desire. And that means our goal in life shouldn't be to insulate ourselves off from everyone else's problems, failures, real life, ministry, by living on a mountaintop, isolated, behind big walls and fences. Jesus went, no, we're going back down. We went up, yes, it was glorious, but we're going back down the mountain. And us too. Not to live insulated, whether that's spacious, spatially, oh, get me away from those people, or emotionally, I don't have the energy or bandwidth for you right now. I just don't, I can't, sorry, I just can't. Or relationally, I'm done with you. 
Jesus goes back to the crowds, to real-life suffering, as we're going to see in this story, real-life trauma, real-life pain. And he takes those three disciples back to where, did you ever think, where were the other nine? Where were the other nine when they went up to the mountain? He took the three. Where were the other nine? We get to see where the other nine were. They were in the middle of a mess. They were in the middle of an absolute disaster. He left the, uh, the nine, and that's what they descended down into, a mess, a mess. Mark paints for us this chaotic scene. What do we hear? Red. A father comes. He's brought his demon-possessed boy to Jesus' disciples, actually meant to take him to Jesus, but he wasn't there, and they fail. They fail to cast the demon out. They're powerless. They absolutely fall flat on their face. And Jesus arrives in the scene we heard read as the great crowd and the scribes who were Jesus' enemies and the fathers there and the boys there and the disciples are there and they're all arguing. They're all just arguing, the text says. Arguing. Why couldn't you do it? Well, I don't know. We were able to do it last time. We were able to do it before. Mark 6, they were. They, they had cast out demons without Jesus there. Your Jesus is a fraud, they probably heard. Well, no, no, no. He'll be, he'll be back soon, I promise. He just took Peter, James, and John. They went on a little mission, a little errand. Oh, we don't know where they went. They're co- He's coming back, I promise. He's not a fraud, I promise you. To the Father, maybe they said, you think they can help you? You think their Jesus has the answer for your boy laying on the ground, writhing? You think these guys can help you? All, probably all stuff like this. As they argued amongst themselves. Probably mostly accusing the disciples. Probably mostly what was taking place. And because of that, accusing Jesus' name in the process. This was a big deal. Because they represented him. The disciples represented him as his disciples, his ambassadors, his mouthpiece to the people. And so when they accused the disciples, they were really accusing Jesus because they represented him, just like you and I do. We represent Jesus. Like we do. They did. And so our failures then and how we handle them, if we represent Jesus like the disciples did, they become an opportunity either on the one hand to abanish or tarnish or turn from Jesus as we handle our failures, or on the other hand, in our failures, point to Jesus. Point people to him. Point our spouse and our family members and our kids to Jesus in the middle of our failures even. They become an opportunity for us if we represent him. Because that's what they were missing. In that moment of ministry, they were missing. In this endeavor, this endeavor now, to exercise this demon out of the boy, they were missing Jesus. They were missing Jesus. They were living that part of life, that ministry moment, by their own strength. By their own strength. Yes, of course Jesus was physically gone. He was physically gone Uh, from the scene on the mountaintop, but as we're going to see, he was spiritually gone from them too. They were miles away from him in that moment. Miles away from him in the middle of crisis. He was probably the last one on their mind. Do you live your life that way? Compartmentalized is the word. Kind of fractioned off. Compartmentalizing your discipleship, your relationship with Jesus. 
you maybe approach the mountaintop on Sunday to get, a, to get an experience, to get a glimpse of Jesus, to get your spiritual pep talk. But throughout the week, maybe you're like the disciples, far away from Jesus. Do you live that compartmentalized life? Where faith in Jesus is kept here in this little box for Sunday, but the rest of your life, like the disciples here, they, they were so far away from Jesus. Physically, yes, but spiritually, too. We see it in their failure. Far away from Him. Do you live that way? Swamped by failure of your own or others. All too ready to get into an argument as the disciples obviously were. As we'll see later, lacking in, in prayer life. Lacking in prayer. Full of doubts. No time to commune with Jesus. Thinking your reputation, your past achievements, your formula for technique, whatever it is, will get you through another day. A misplaced self-confidence that we'll see the disciples had. Do you live with Jesus fractioned off into a box? Compartmentalized to your Sunday. Well, how do we know the disciples did that? How do we know they had that misplaced self-confidence? Well, they ask later in verse 28, they say, why couldn't, why couldn't we cast it out? Why couldn't we do it, Jesus? They had tried. They had an endeavor. They made an effort with this demon-possessed boy. Their problem, though, was unbelief. They forgot Jesus. There's a great lesson for us here today in the, these disciples' lives, in their failure, in their unbelief that Jesus says to them. Just like them, whenever a, a disciple, whenever we try to do any good endeavor without a continued, ongoing, day-to-day, -day, relational, personal faith in Jesus Christ, dependence upon Him, if we don't live that way, we too show how weak we are, how, 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 how feeble and needy we really are. We really are. To their credit, though, the disciples, uh, they want to learn from their mistake, don't they? They want to learn from their mistake, like the psalmist at the beginning who said, it's good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Uh, they want to learn at the end of our story today, we're going to see they ask him, why couldn't we cast it out? Well, maybe they took Jesus' words to heart in verse 19. Words that showed in this moment again, Jesus is experiencing this overwhelming emotion. Jesus was a solid guy. Jesus was a strong guy. And yet Jesus uh, was also an emotional guy. Oh, he uses that word. Oh, oh, he says to show this emotional pain. His heartbreak at going to the mountain. He was gone six or seven days. He comes back. How could you forget me so quickly? Oh, how could you forget? Because his words diagnose the problem. Look at verse 19 with me of chapter 9. He says to them, um, he answered them, Oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me, means the boy. He's, oh, how long? 
He's pointing out, diagnosing the problem that you and I, we need every day, not just when crisis comes, not just when failure comes, but every endeavor, we need to be centered on Jesus. We need to be communing with Jesus, talking with Jesus, not forgetting about Jesus and our daily need of Him in every, everything, every moment of our week. Your discipleship, your growth, my discipleship, my growth comes from day-to-day, not just Sunday, day-to-day communion in your life with God moment by moment. Don't compartmentalize your discipleship life. Don't compartmentalize your faith. As important as Sunday is, as important to your spiritual life as coming almost as many weeks as you can here, don't compartmentalize it. The disciples did, and it got them in big trouble. Well, he comes down the mountain, and they run to him, don't they? They run to him and greet him. They flee towards him. It's a visual picture for us. Mark gives us. Jesus comes down the mountain. Oh, Jesus, there he is. They run to him. It's a visual picture for us that God wants us to see. We need to run to him daily when we wake up, when we're in the middle of our day, when we go to bed. They run to him. It's a visual picture. And the dad says, teacher, I brought my son, but they can't do it. I brought my son, but they can't do it. And if you and I want to be a person who's filled with God's power, and I do, I know a lot of you do, if we want to be a church, Bethany Church, that's filled with God's power, and I know a lot of us do, and I do, we need to hear His words here. We need to hear Jesus' words here as He says, oh, faithless generation. He's saying to them, where's your faith? Where's your faith? Bring me the boy. Where is your faith? Bring him to me. That's our first absolute need that Mark wants us to see in this story as Jesus comes down the mountain. You and I in absolutely every endeavor, every moment, every second of life need Jesus. We're needy people. you got to have him. Don't compartmentalize your faith and put Jesus in a Sunday box. Leads to our second absolute need. That was our first one. We need Jesus in every endeavor. Jesus points to the fact, too, that we have an absolute need also for faith in all circumstances. So Jesus in every endeavor, faith in all circumstances of life now. Faith in all circumstances of life. And we kind of move into this part of the story of the boy and the demon-possessed father, or the, the dad and the demon-possessed boy. Well, think about them for a moment. The dad there with the boy... The disciples aren't able to do anything. This has been happening since he was a kid. We don't like it as parents, whether your kid's 8 or 48, or our grandkids. We don't like it as parents or grandparents when we realize our kids are out of the reach of our protective, uh, formative, whatever you want to call it, shepherding care. We don't like it, do we? We don't like that feeling. Uh, When our care, our reach falls short of what we're able to do for our child, our grandkids, we want to be able to help them, don't we? Protect them. It's a natural desire. Um, We want to look out for them, don't we? And when we can't, whether it's by their age and they've moved out or they were making choices and we can't just control them, we feel helpless when there's nothing we can do. Have you felt that? Maybe you're feeling it right now as you think of a situation of a child, a grandkid, a loved one, and you just wish you could get in there. They're outside of your reach. I mean, it's a simple example. 
But I was shocked this week as I walked into the uh, Canby Library. I walked to the front desk to return something, and I saw there on the desk this, this new uh, policy that they put on the thing for us to all see from the American Library Association. A policy that says, as a parent, I'm not allowed to know what material my child checks out. It's like, whoa, that, that the child has a right to privacy that overrules my right, my reach as a parent to decide what content they can fill their heart and mind with. And so when I asked, well, what can I do then as a parent? Uh, they said, well, you can cancel your child's library card. So I, was, so I thought I was kind of like, so I have the right to, they need me to get a card. I can cancel at any time, but I can't see what they're checking out. Like, oh, that's not quite logical. But it was one of those moments where I felt like, oh, my parental reach, my arms have just been lopped off. <laughs> It's so simple, but I, I did feel in that moment like, well, I would want to know what my 16-year-old child's checking out, my 14-year-old child. My protective reach was threatened. Now imagine the father in the story. That's just a simple library example. He wasn't trying to protect his child from a, uh, a runaway library card. He was trying to protect him from a malignant, demonic presence the demon possession that had been taking place from childhood that had made his boy mute and would seize him and try to destroy him by throwing him into the fire or drowning in water and he would grind his teeth and foam at the mouth and become as rigid as a board on the ground. Imagine that. Convulsions. Imagine the despair that that father feels and the pain that father feels when his reach is, he's got no reach there. Probably tried all kinds of things through that boy's life. All kinds of things. The doubt, imagine, too, that crept in. Is there anything, anyone, anyone who can help this boy? Look at him. We all find a bit of ourselves in that father and his pain and his despair and his doubt in that moment. Maybe it's your prodigal child or your addicted child, your spiritually oppressed child or your child or grandkid that just seems to make decision after decision that derails their life. And we cry out like the father in verse 22, but if you can do anything, Jesus, have compassion on us and help. Let's look at Jesus' response to that father's cry of desperation. Look at verse 23 with me. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mutant deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Well, if the father hurt at seeing his son hurt, Jesus hurt even more, believe it or not. Do you believe that? I mean, who would have hurt more than a father watching his son writhe in pain on the ground, foaming at the mouth? Jesus did. Jesus hurt more for that boy than even that father did. He cared in this world as no one else has ever cared for humanity. It means he cares for you even more then you care for yourself. It means he cares for whatever child you have in the image of your mind this morning connecting to this story. He cares more for them than you ever will be able to. 
And I'm sure the father saw it in Jesus' eyes as he pleaded with him, help me if you can. I think he knew Jesus could, or maybe didn't know if he could, but he knew he had the compassion to. Probably saw it in his eyes. Well, help me then if you can. The father knew something of this, but his faith had probably been shaken, don't you think? By the disciples' failure. Well, if they can't, can you? I mean, they're they're your followers. If they can't, can you? His faith is really small at this point, but at least he's looking in the right direction, isn't he? At least he's looking in the right direction. In verse 17, what does he say? Teacher, I brought my son to you. Jesus just happened to not be there. He was on the mountain. He was looking in the right direction, even with a tiny bit of faith. I brought my son to you, Jesus. And Jesus' response, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. In essence, he's saying, of course I can heal him. That's not the issue. Of course I can heal him. That's not the issue. The issue is, do you have any faith? Do you believe? And here, at this point, we have one of the most abused verses in all the Bible. There's two errors we make with this verse. We've got to talk about them, because we're all thinking right now, well, what does that mean then? What does that mean for the prayers that I would like answered? Well, on the one side, we have some who are kind of glib, and they just say, just have faith. Just have faith. Ah, it's the power of faith. You, you just need it. You know, it's kind of glib and, well, faith in what? I mean, just believe in something? What what does that mean? Or the other kind of error on this side is sort of the the reason you don't get the healing is because you don't have enough faith. All your wishes would come true if you just believe. And I'll tell you, that's a lie from the pit of hell called prosperity theology. That is not the Bible. If you only would believe a bit more, you would have what you really want. It's man-centered. It's that theology is man-driven. It's, it's man-made. And when you're dealing with the illness of a child, that doesn't help, actually, if somebody would tell you that. Oh, it's all up to your faith. It's all up to you. If you would just muster up enough belief. God's wanting. He's really wanting to help you, but you just can't get to that level of faith in the tank. That's not helpful for somebody that's in the middle of seeing a child on the ground writhing with a demon. God never promises all healing, and he's not really beholden to us. That view of faith where it just says, hey, if you only believe a little more, you'd get your miracle. That view of faith is misplaced because it's faith in the faith itself. It's just faith in faith. Oh, you just got to believe. You just got to have more faith. Clearly, the father here didn't have super faith, did he? Very clearly here. He did not have super faith. When you see what he says, that's one error we have. However, the other error is that there are times when we just don't believe God can do anything. We don't ask anything because we just don't believe. We fail to believe God's word. We fail to believe his promises. We fail to believe God hears us. We fail to believe that God still does great things when we pray in faith. And so we don't ask at all. That's the other error. We don't cry out at all like this dad does. We become just sort of self-sufficient, like the disciples in this story. Faith is that bridge. Faith is important. 
We need faith. We're talking about it. Jesus said, believe to this man. Faith is like that bridge, though, that connects God's action and our helplessness. We realize, when we realize we can't do anything, and we're absolutely dependent upon God, without that realization, no action on God's part really takes place. It is a connecting point for us between God's powerful action and our own need and just dependence upon Him. That's the key here in our story because Jesus says to, calls the Father to believe because Jesus tells Him belief was the condition for His Son's healing. In verse 23, it was a belief that the Father could do nothing, could do nothing, but Jesus could if He willed, if He believed. And we get right there one of the most amazing, honest, raw, transparent responses in all of Scripture, I think. All of Scripture. I believe, but help my unbelief. He didn't have super faith, did he? He wasn't told, hey, if you just have that level, if you, oh, if you could just get yourself up to that level of faith, then you'd get your miracle. No, he goes right to him and says, yeah, I believe, but help this 99% of unbelief I've got. I believe, but help my unbelief. Why is this so amazing? Because it means there's hope for all of us then. It means there's hope for all of us in this man. Each and every one of us in this room today. Because that's actually, if we're honest, that's actually uh, uh, the experience of a lot of Christians. And we're not too often uh, uh, honest about that. But we, you and I live in the real day-to-day world, not on the mountain necessarily, down in the day-to-day world, where there is a real tension between real faith that battles with real doubts. We don't like to talk about that a lot. Because we feel like, well, if I even let know that there's any of a, a, a crack of doubt in me, it's all gone. I've lost it. I don't have that level of faith I need anymore. It's gone. I've lost it. Maybe it was never real in the first place. We all struggle with that battle of real faith, genuine, but doubts that creep in. Sometimes our faith feels like a struggle, like a wrestling match, trying to pin somebody to the ground. Sometimes it feels like a clinging on type of faith, like you're hanging onto a life raft with 10-foot waves over your head. Sometimes it feels like a resting faith, doesn't it? I have to trust. And that's where we all want to get to. That's where God's moving us to. But we struggle with faith. Here's a quote by Garland. He was a commentator I read this week. Faith is always at a disadvantage and seems so fragile, but nevertheless can outlive all its would-be conquerors. The Father tethers what little faith he has to Christ and ask for help just as he is. Not get to 99% that I'll help you, Father. He just tethers himself to Jesus just as he is. I believe, help my unbelief. Quote goes on. Jesus does not expect him to summon up a mighty faith before anything can be done, but only to trust that God can act decisively through this man, through him. He's, what he's doing, he's, he's opening empty hands to Jesus. That's what he's doing. That's what you and I need to do. He's saying, I I know, Jesus, I can't manufacture faith. I am weak. My faith is incomplete. But I don't even trust the purity and power of my own faith. I trust you, Jesus. I trust you. That's what I'm coming to. Okay, I believe. Help my unbelief. He's saying, help me in spite of me. 
is what he's saying. Help me in spite of me. And what happens? Jesus raises the boy. He raises the boy. He gets rid of the demon. He raises the boy to new life and rebukes the demon. And you see that he tenderly, he lifts the boy up off the ground who's been writhing there. And they think he's even dead, actually, by that point. He lifts him off the ground. The text literally says, Jesus raised him and he was resurrected. That's what it literally says. Jesus raised him and he was resurrected. So don't despair. Don't despair. Where there's temptation to despair. Whether it's your prodigal child, the messy family situation, the illness that's come on, the loss in your life. Don't despair. Do what? Plead with Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Plead with him as this this father did. It's okay. I want, to tell, I want to make sure we all know this. It's okay to talk about our doubts even in the middle of our own faith in the church. We have to hear that. It's okay to talk about our doubts even in the midst of our faith at church. Do you know that? I hope you do. You heard it today. It's okay. Because divine ability or our ability, that's not the problem. Our problem is our own self-sufficiency. So it's okay to admit that from time to time. Be like the Father. Plead for faith. Plead for trust. Depend on Jesus. But how do we know if we're doing that? It's our third need. How do you know if you're living that way? Self-confident, relying on yourself. How do you know if we are like the disciples? It's, It's our third absolute need. We have an absolute need for prayer in all our dependency. That's our third need from this passage we're pulling out. We have an absolute need to pray, really in all of life, and for all of life, in our dependency. I love how Mark, he brackets the disciples' failure um, and the discussion of his failure, their failure, with this cry for faith right in the middle. So bookends, I guess that's maybe a better word. He bookends this cry for faith with the disciples' failure at the top. They can't uh, exercise the demon, and then they start talking about it in these last two verses. They're kind of like, where's the connection there? All of a sudden, they go from the demon, and they're in the house. Uh, he, he brackets there, because ultimately, that's what the disciples were missing. They were missing their absolute need for Jesus in their ministry efforts. Their ongoing faith and trust is what caused this failure, and it was big. This was a big failure. They'd already had success in this area. Now they're failing. It was public. It was out in the open. Who likes to fail on national news? Nobody. (laughs) It was out in the open. It brought divisiveness. It brought arguing. It brought doubt about the power of Jesus, and it filled all of them around there with doubt now about Jesus. This was a big failure. What had happened? Why did they fail? Here's another quote for us by a guy named Chris Marshall. He said, presumably, that's the disciples, they, the disciples, had come to regard their power to heal and exercise uh, as their own, let's get rid of demons, as their own autonomous possession. Rather than being a commission from Jesus to realize his delegate authority afresh each time through dependent prayer. Mark's suggesting, then, that self-confident optimism may 
feel like faith, but it's in fact unbelief because it disregards the prerequisite of human powerlessness and prayerful dependence on God. That last line again. Prerequisite of human powerlessness and prayerful dependence on God. Those disciples probably had a self-confidence. Hey, remember Mark 6? We did pretty good in Mark 6, guys. Let's go and get this demon. They probably had a pretty good self-confidence. An optimism that even felt like them to faith, like faith. But if that's the way we live our life with that kind of self-confidence, Marshall's saying, and I think Jesus is pointing us there with this point to prayer, is that that's actually a form of unbelief. It's actually a form of unbelief. Well, how do you know then? How do you know if you're in any given moment, any given day, any given week or month, living a self-confident life, a life of unbelief, detached from Jesus? Look at your prayer life. Look at your prayer life. Look at verse 28 and 29 with me. A weak prayer life points to an overconfident person, an unbelieving person. As this section wraps up, verse 28 and 29, when they entered, or when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to him, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Prayer. I mean, on the one hand, you have to love the fact that the disciples were self-aware enough, humble enough to not let the moment go by without getting some constructive feedback from Jesus. If only all of us were that uh, open to feedback in our failures, right? Well, tell us, what, what did I do wrong? How often do we say that? Could you tell me, what have I, how have I been sinning against you this week? How often do we say that to those we love? How, how have I failed you this week? Can you tell me? I mean, they were at least, on the one hand, they were at least open enough to hear a little feedback and get some feedback here. But I have been absolutely so convicted by this this week. I would say, I would say I've been floored by this this week. These two little tag-on verses that you would, you, I would, we would read over and be like, okay, Jesus said, well, you know, it was just a demon. You have to pray, of course. I've been so convicted in my own life and ministry this week when I think about my own prayerlessness. Bethany, do we want to be, to have a spiritually impactful church? We want to be that. Do we want to, do you want to have an impact in others' lives around you? Those you know, neighbors, those in Canby, those in our family? Here's the question, do we pray for that? Do I pray for that? Or am I just like the disciples who feel like they can go it on their own and then stand shocked? Why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we do it? I love this quote by uh, Nowen, Henry Nowen. He says, we've fallen into the temptation of separating service from prayer. Our demons say we're too busy to pray. We have too many needs to attend to, too many people to respond to, too many wounds to heal. Prayer is a luxury. Something to do during a free hour or a day away from work or on a retreat. If you, we, you and I go into our life, which is a spiritual battle, all of life is a spiritual battle, whether we know it or not. 
If we go into our life without prayer, we've lost before we've even begun. We've lost before the battle's even, before we've taken one step on the battlefield or the foot out of the bed in the morning. We've lost. And that's really what today's passage is about. If we do anything in our own strength and pride, we fall by our own hand, and it's actually a form of unbelief. It's actually a form of unbelief. But if we bridge the gap, if we bridge the gap between divine power and our absolute human need for Jesus by faith exercised through prayer, we open the floodgates of heaven. We open the floodgates of heaven. And don't you think as even as Jesus descended into the darkness of this trial here, that you and I descend into the darkness of our own trials, they're there to show us that very need. That in the middle of those, if you go about it, if we go about it, if I go about it, self-sufficient, not flooding it with prayer and faith in Jesus, even if it's a 1%, I believe, help my unbelief. That we'll fail before we even started or begin. We are so needy. Our culture doesn't want us to be reminded of that. But God does. Because when you see your needy, what fills up your need? Jesus. Jesus does. We so need Jesus. We so need faith every day. We so need prayer every day. And if this table shows us anything, it shows us that. Because we were so needy that the way God had to fix the problem was to send His very own Son to die for our need. That's what this table shows us. There was that line again. The pre, it's, it's mouthy, it's wordy, but the prerequisite of human powerlessness and prayerful dependence on God. That's what this table shows us. Our own powerlessness and yet God's absolute amazing power because this table also points to the resurrection. This table also points to the resurrection. So as we prepare now today, I want us to, it's okay now between you and God to tell Him what your need is. He knows it, but it's actually good to say in the midst of prayer, I believe, Jesus, but help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I I give this to you because I know I can't fix the situation, but I ask you to work in the way that you've chosen best, God. Let's do that for a moment. Spend some time between yourself and the Lord. And as these elements come around today, 1 Corinthians, I believe, is, encourages us to, if, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you haven't seen your need yet today, to just to let these pass by, okay? This is really a, an intimate time for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. This is an intimate moment for those that say, I've seen my need, okay? So if it comes by, let it pass today. It doesn't make much sense to take part of a really intimate meal if you haven't quite placed your faith in Christ yet. I encourage you to do so today. Nobody's going to be looking down the aisle judging you. Just let it pass by. But let's all of us, at least right now, just as our uh, servers come forward and prepare, let's spend a few moments just telling God your needs. Let's do that.